I appreciate so much Tom leading those two songs. Originally, um, I'd asked Dale to lead them when Dale was down for leading singing, but he's struggling a little bit with his voice and vocal cords, I guess, this morning. But I appreciate so much those two songs. I want to be a soul winner for Jesus. And of course, our invitation song this morning will be bringing in the sheaves. As Dale so often says, there are many songs that fit so many of these sermons and the sentiments that are expressed in them. I also want you to know that I appreciate very, very much those of you who have stepped out on faith, a lot of you it's first time, and volunteered to try to go and to set up a Bible study with folks that responded that they would like one. I realize that, believe me, being a preacher, I realize that can be a struggle. I realize that maybe not everybody that um, said that they would like a Bible study is going to make it um, incredibly easy, but I still believe that there are those who definitely want one. And... Um, so as we continue to fish for the souls of men, I want to preach this morning on the psalm of a soul winner. Now, I realize as well that not everybody that you study with is going to become a Christian. You know that as well. But see, <clears throat> there's benefits all around to your seeking out studies and studying with people. It's not just a benefit to those whom you will study with, even if they become a Christian, although that is the, that is the most rewarding, that is, that is what we're after. But there are benefits in other areas too. You know, it's sort of like the ladies' craft group. It's not just a benefit to those who receive the hats and the sweaters and the mittens and the cold. It's a benefit to everybody involved. It's a benefit to the ladies in that it gives them a purpose, especially some of our um, silver-haired saints and sisters in the church. Sometimes, you know, they, they, they're looking for something to do that gives them purpose, something that they can do in a way that they can serve. And so this gives that to them. It's therapeutic for those who have arthritis. Uh, there's many benefits, whether the ladies, it's to the ladies that are making these things or to the recipients of them. There's benefits all around. And it's the same way with seeking to teach somebody the gospel of Christ. Again, yes, the main benefit is for those who become Christians. However, that's not the only benefit to this. You see... Some of you who are stepping out on faith for the first time and, and have volunteered to conduct Bible studies with people, <clears throat> excuse me, to conduct Bible studies with people, there's benefits to you as well. Nobody learns any more in a Bible study than the teacher. Because you have to be prepared. You have to take the time and go over the studies. You have to be prepared for what you're about to teach. You also have to be prepared for questions that will come. You have to be prepared in all of these areas. And not only that, not only is that a benefit because it increases your knowledge, but as you seek to set up these studies with people, even if some of them don't actually have a study with you, or even if some do, but after two or three, they see what the Bible says and they simply don't want to humble themselves and submit to God, there's still a benefit to you. And the benefit to you as the one teaching the study is that you stepped out on faith, you've given this a shot, you've done what Jesus asked you to do, and 
it's, it's got you to thinking along these lines of talking to people more often about Jesus. It's got you thinking about these things, setting up studies with people, and once you've done it the first time, you're a little more apt to do it again. So it's, it's just another step in your Christian growth process and your Christian maturation as you get more and more comfortable with and excited about talking to people about Jesus and setting up Bible studies and starting Bible studies. You know, it's sort of like elementary math. You learn early on two plus two is four. How many times do you use that in the rest of your life? making out checks or, or whatever for the rest of your life, you don't even think about it, but knowing 2 plus 2 is 4, you move on to the next step and you keep using that throughout your entire life, this simple basic math. And you build on it and the, the processes become more complex. Well, it's the same way after you start that first Bible study with somebody. The benefit to you is you get more used to doing it. And so God can use that in many ways as you continue on in this Christian maturation. And so as a part of supporting and encouraging that current phase of your growth process this morning, I offer the following lesson. <clears throat> I guess I inhaled a little too much smoke yesterday. Excuse me. Brother Dan Jenkins is a longtime preacher in the church. He preaches in Florida. Some of you have heard him speak at Affirming the Faith. Brother Dan Jenkins also writes articles for the Church of Christ Articles website, which I am privileged to write for as well. And he recently had an article posted there, which inspired this morning's lesson. And the title of his article, as well as this sermon, is The Psalm of the soul winner. And we're going to be focusing this morning on Psalm 126, a brief little psalm. If you would open your Bibles, it is the center and the theme of this sermon entitled The Psalm of the Soul Winner, Psalm 126. Brother Jenkins begins his article by saying, The book of Psalms expresses the deep emotions that servants of God have. There is something about poetry and singing which touch the souls of God's people. And as we talked about last Sunday night when we talked about singing, we know that is true. Brother Jenkins continues, Each of the Psalms is different and has a special place in the various stages of our lives as we serve our Creator. Psalm 126, for example, gives us great insight into the emotions each of us has as we seek to lead others to the Lord. Psalm 126 is truly the psalm of the soul winner. Please notice as we begin Psalm 126, you may have a little heading in your Bible. Some of you do. It says Song of Ascents. And what that means is, is these are songs that God's Old Testament people would sing as they ascended up to Jerusalem for worship. This was one of those songs that they sang. Being a soul winner begins with an abiding sense this, this is critical. Being a soul winner begins with an abiding sense of how lost we were before we became a child of God. 
And I think that's important for us to remember. You know, it's easy for us to get comfortable as Christians. It's easy for us to, well, you know, Christ died for me and that's great and that's wonderful and I've been cleansed by the blood and that's just awesome and it is. I don't mean to belittle that or be irreverent, but we can get comfortable with that. We can forget where we came from. We can forget how lost we were prior to Christ. Remember one of the old Rocky movies in that series of Sylvester Stallone movies. At one point, he became so comfortable as the champion that he just kind of took it for granted. And when he lost his title, he went back to the old gym and he had to start all over. He had to remember where he came from. And it's vital for us as Christians, as Brother Jenkins says, to remember where we came from. He says, every soul winner, while not in physical captivity, was held captive to Satan. Jesus told us that in Luke 4.18, as did the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.26. Brother Jenkins says of verse 1 in Psalm 126, The psalmist said, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Now, it's important for us to understand what he's saying. He's not saying, when the Lord brought back the captivity, when he put us into captivity again. That's, that's not what this verse is saying, and it may lose a little something in translation. What the psalm is saying, when the Lord brought back those of the captivity, in fact, if you have a New King James Version Bible, it will probably have a footnote, and it will point you to the center column, where it literally means, when the Lord brought back those of the captivity, or when the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like those who dream. It was a dream come true. It was beyond our wildest dreams that we would ever get back here. That's the idea. When the Lord brought them back, they just, it, it was like a dream. It was like they were, were walking through this euphoric dream. Couldn't believe that they were actually back when the Lord brought them back. It was, it was incredible. Brother James Burton Kaufman said this, This must have indeed been an understatement. After two or three generations... Some 70 years. You know, whole families had grown up and members had died and, and the new generation had come along. 70 years after that long of captivity in Babylon, they are suddenly on the way back to Jerusalem just as God had promised. Don't we serve an awesome God? He keeps his promises. Not only were they on the way back home, but the all-powerful Medo-Persian monarch Cyrus is financing their return, sponsoring and encouraging it in every way possible. No wonder they laughed and sang for joy. Never before in the whole history of the human race had there ever been anything like this, and we might add there's never been anything like it since then. Surely the hand of Almighty God is visible in those events. They couldn't believe it. We see this same phraseology about the captivity, meaning those of the captivity, again down in verse 4 where it says, bring back our captivity. What that means is, bring back those of the captivity, all the rest of them, O Lord, as the streams in the south. <clears throat> you know, when you're in a really dry place, and God allows the rain to fall and the rivers to come up. What a blessing it is. We know from drought around here. We know from grass fire and fire danger how wonderful it is when the rains come. 
What a, what a refreshing thing that is and how wonderful it is that God sends the rains. And so that is the point in verse 4. Bring back all of the captives. Bring back all of those still there in the captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. What a refreshing thing. And you see, for this morning's sermon, the point is that is that is every child of God was once a child of Satan, but he is now brought back from captivity. Being an effective soul winner always begins, always begins by never losing sight of the fact that we were all, every one of us, who's now in Christ, all of us, once were personally and individually exactly where every lost soul around us today currently is. Every one of us was there. We must never lose sight of that. We were once hopeless. We were once helpless to save ourselves. We were once lost in sin without God, without Christ, without the church, without the promises. That's where we were. Headed for an eternally fiery forever, desperately in need of those streams of living water. We were there. We needed those streams of living water. Like the streams in the south, verse 4. The same streams of living water that Jesus talked about in John 7, 37 and 38. We were hungering and thirsting. We were perishing. We were headed for hell. We must never forget that. That's what empowered the Apostle Paul. Did you know that? That's what empowered the, and propelled the Apostle Paul in all of his evangelistic efforts. If you read Romans chapter 7 and 8, if you read 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, if you read Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, if you read 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17 and so many others, that's what empowered the Apostle Paul is he looked back to how lost he was. And how much he needed the grace of God. And how, how horrible and awful it was. Thinking he was doing the right thing, but he wasn't. But then he focuses on God's grace. How God forgave him and made him his child. You see, we must always remember that God... This is what will make you an effective soul winner. We must always remember that God was willing to do whatever it took to reach you before it was too late. Just as we must be ready and willing to do for the lost today, to do whatever it takes before it's too late. Read with me from Ephesians 2. Keep your finger here in Psalm 126, but turn to Ephesians 2. Proves everything I just said. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And you, 
Take it personal. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Remember, he's writing this to the church in Ephesus. He said, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. Paul says, look, you were all there. We were all there. I was there, Paul says. Two of the most important words in Scripture follow. Chapter 2, verse 4, first two words. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them once again, brethren. We all were there, but God was willing to do whatever it took, even sending his only begotten son to die for us, whatever it took to reach us, God was willing to do when we were in that condition. That's why we must be willing to do whatever it takes as we follow in God's footsteps to reach those who are in the same condition we used to be in. Turn back, if you would, to Psalm 126. The second verse of Psalm 126, Brother Dan Jenkins has this to say in regards to... Being a soul winner results in a change of attitude toward worshiping God. The psalm continues in verse 2 with these words. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. We have been freed from the bondage of sin and our tears have been turned into laughter and our grief to singing. Great soul winners never forget what God has done for them and for those they have taught. Did you get that? It's not just about what he's done for us. He did it for them too. Great soul winners never forget what God has done for them and what God has done for those they have taught. The Apostle Paul emphasizes this very well in Philippians 1, 3-11 where he says this, Paul wasn't just mindful of what God had done for him. He was mindful of what God had done for those other Christians, those he had reached out to. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me 
of grace. For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray. That your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, Philippians 1, 3-11. Paul never lost sight of what God had done for him and for those he reached out to. Thirdly, back to Psalm 126. Being a soul winner is known by those people who are around you. The glorious return of the Jews from captivity resulted in the nations around them saying, The Lord has done great things for them, verse 2. You know, people should see that in us. We should have such, a, such an attitude and such a presence and such a, such a fulfilled contentment that people would say when they look at us, not just, well, somebody goes to church. But they should say, look at their joy. Look at what great things God has done for them. Look at, look at how, how fulfilled and joyful and, and at peace. And look how their lives are different. Look how their lives reflect the light of Christ. The glorious return of the Jews from captivity resulted in the nations around them saying, The Lord has done great things for them. Psalm 126 and verse 2. The light of the redeemed shines brightly in the darkness of the world around them. God has changed their lives and the redeemed also say, verse 3, The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. You see, not only should those people around us understand and look at us and say, Wow! Their God must be awesome or what great things God has done for them. But see, we need to, according to Psalm 126 in verse 3, we need to understand and say it as well. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Are you glad this morning? That was underwhelming. Peter talks about the fact as we look forward to the coming of the Lord, we are filled with joy inexpressible. Are you filled with joy? You know, and you, I'm not looking for an amen chorus, okay? But just think about it. Are you filled with joy inexpressible? Are you glad this morning to be here? See, I don't understand, having become a Christian... How people that have become Christians and tasted the goodness of the Lord can be glad to be anywhere else this morning other than in worship. How can they be glad to be anywhere else or doing anything else other than being in the presence of the very one who went to the cross for them? I don't get that. But I'm happy to be here. I'm glad. I'm glad because you're here, yeah. But I rejoice because... God is here. And there's nowhere else on earth except in another congregation of His people where there is anybody as important or who loves me as much as being here. God's people, verse 3, are so glad and so grateful for the great things that God has done for them. 
that they live a completely new and different and grateful and joyful life, walking in the light and seeking to seeking to shine that light, seeking to spread that word, seeking to serve God and shine that light into all of the darkness around them. Ephesians 4 and 5 and 1 Peter chapters 1 through 4. And people see that. You know, they might not agree with us. Okay. That's going to happen. Because light shines into darkness and because people's deeds are, are evil, they don't like to come to the light. Well, that's explained in John chapter 3. But the fact is that as we shine the light, people are going to see it, whether they agree with it or not. And they should. They see that light. They know that we're different. In Philippians 2, 14 through 16, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing or complaining, as some versions say. He said, Serve the Lord without grumbling, without complaining, without disputing. Serve the Lord. Humble yourselves. In the beginning of Philippians 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Have the same attitude that Christ had, who humbled himself and was obedient to God no matter what. And, and as a people... The way that we shine the light is when we, when we serve the Lord without grumbling and complaining. We shouldn't have to be dragged kicking and screaming to serve the Lord. Romans chapter 12 tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, those sacrifices would be, would be tied up. The Old Testament physical animal sacrifices, they'd be tied up and they'd be put on the altar and they could smell the blood and, and the animals didn't want to be there. And sometimes, you know, they'd want to kick and get down. Brethren, we shouldn't be kicking and screaming to, to live our lives as a living sacrifice. We should willingly put ourselves on the altar for God. After he put himself on a cross for us, how can we not? So, we shouldn't have to be dragged kicking and screaming to serve. That's not shining the light. That's dimming the light. Being a soul winner means shining the light in the darkness. Number four. Being a soul winner also creates an optimistic expectation that others will be one. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 126. And brethren, I'll tell you right now, this is the kicker. This is the top of the mountain here. This is the one that I've been waiting to get to, to make a real rubber meets the road type application. For you, I want you to be strengthened and encouraged this morning. Being a soul winner creates an optimistic expectation that others will be one. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Is the Bible still true? Does this verse mean what it says? Read it again. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Brother Jenkins says, As you read this verse, take special note of the tears shed by those who are sowing the seed of the kingdom. Most people we teach will not Turn to the Lord, and we are more concerned about their salvation than they are. Amen? 
Brother Jenkins nails this. Most people we teach will not turn to the Lord and we are more concerned about their salvation than they are. Folks, I've heard the stories. I've heard from you, some of you coming in. I've heard from one of you who signed up out here and, and you went to this house and you talked to somebody who said that, yeah, they, they would like a Bible study. And they admitted, uh, well, I may have misled those young people. No, I, yeah. I've heard the stories. I've heard the stories how another one of you went to somebody's house to talk with, with the lady who said she might like a Bible study and there was a man there whose mouth was filthy and spewing language that I probably did back when I was a truck driver before I became a Christian. I've heard the stories about how another one of you has gone and, and after the initial contact, you've gone back to this person's house several times, knocked on the door, nobody comes to the door. You've tried to call them on the phone number they gave and it's been disconnected. I've heard you. Brethren, most people we teach will not turn to the Lord and we are more concerned about their salvation than they are. Brother Kaufman says this simply means no tears on our behalf, no converts to Christ. Spurgeon said this, when a man's heart is so stirred, and he's talking about Christians who want to reach out to others. When a man's heart is so stirred that he weeps over the sins of others, he is useful. Winners for souls are first weepers for souls. As there is no birth without birthing pains, so there is no spiritual harvest without pain and tears. When our hearts are broken with grief at man's transgressions, we'll break other men's hearts. Tears of earnestness beget tears of repentance. What is he saying? He's saying this. Look, what makes people effective soul winners is that their heart is broken. That they care more about other people's souls than those people out there seem to care about theirs at times. That's what he's talking about. When your heart is so broken because you remember where you were from, where you were headed, and that those people are headed in that direction too, and it makes you just want to cry when they reject the truth. That's what makes you an effective soul winner. Luke 19. Please turn there. You know one thing that made Jesus Christ himself so effective at reaching people? Because their lost condition broke his heart. Because their lost condition, when they rejected him, when he tried to teach them what it was going to take to go to heaven, and they rejected him, and they hung him on a cross, Jesus cried for them. Luke 19, beginning at verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city. And he wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you. And, and, and I want you to picture, I don't want you to just picture this as I read it. I don't know how Jesus read it. But the Bible says he cried. He wept. And so, I want you to picture Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. And 
as he's crying, as the tears are coming down his face, I want you to think about him saying these words. I don't think he just said, well, if you had known even you, especially in this... Uh, no, no, no. Think about him with tears. You know sometimes when you, when you have tears and your eyes are running and you kind of gasp and you're trying to get something out? Picture Jesus riding in that way. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus was crying over these people. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. They'll surround you and close you in on every side. And they will level you. Jesus knew. He was God in the flesh. Jesus knew the blood that was going to run in those streets. He knew the Romans were coming in 70 AD. And he knew they were going to take out men and women and old men and, and babies. And it was going to be a slaughter. And he's just crying because they're rejecting him. He says, they're going to level you and your children within you to the ground and they'll not leave in you one stone on another because you did not know the time of your visit. You did not accept the truth I'm trying to give you. Folks, let me tell you something. You go to somebody's house and you try to teach them the gospel and they don't answer the door anymore and they won't talk to you and they hang up the phone and it breaks your heart and it causes you to cry. Jesus knows exactly how you feel because he's been there. See, following in the footsteps of Jesus means following in the footsteps of Jesus. You know, we see the Apostle Paul in several places crying. Crying. The mighty Apostle Paul cried his eyes out over people who wouldn't listen. He confirmed to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, how they knew from the first day he came to Asia in what manner he had always lived among them, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials. You know, that's what's going to happen if you are cognizant of the sins and the eternal fiery destination of the lost souls all around you and it breaks your heart. It's going to move you to many tears. The Apostle Paul also noted in verse 31 of that same chapter of Acts chapter 20 how for three years he did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul said he cried more tears than he could count, if you will. Everyone he warned night and day with tears. Three years worth. We would see him again with anguish of heart and crying many tears out of love and over the sins of others in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as well as weeping. He said just weeping over those people who set their mind on earthly things and would not pay attention to the heavenly and repent. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. You stand in front of people as a preacher. And if you know there are some that are listening to you who are not really listening. You know there are some that are going to go out and just pursue earthly things instead of spiritual things. And you know what the Bible says about the Lord weeding out of his kingdom. And you get up and you preach sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, trying desperately with every fiber of your being and with prayer to reach those people that you know 
They're just going to go out and set their mind on earthly things, as we talked, as Corky talked about this morning. They're, they're sitting in the pews, and that's about it. Maybe, most of the time, sort of, kind of. At least once a month. It makes you want to cry. Makes you just some days want to sit down and just cry. Because I'll tell you what, this ain't just limited to the folks out there. Paul talked about the many tears he had shed. You ever, you ever wonder what made the Apostle Paul such an effective soul winner? Here's the answer. He wept over people's sins that bothered him so much. And conversely, James Burton Kaufman said this, Right here is the secret of the ineffectiveness of many Christian people's influence over others. The secret of their ineffectiveness, those Christians who are ineffective, there is simply no tearful earnestness in their desire for another's salvation. Doesn't matter to them. They're Christians and they don't really care if anybody else becomes one or not. It's okay. I got better things to do. It doesn't really matter that that person is lost. That's not, hey, that's not me. And so they're ineffective because that person's eternal destination really doesn't bother them much. I want you to consider for a moment the incredible truth of that statement about the ineffectiveness of many Christian people's influence is they simply have no tearful earnestness in their desire for another's salvation. And then I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you moved to tears? Maybe not physically, some of us don't cry, but are you moved to a broken heart and tears? As you consider the lost state of some of your friends and neighbors and co-workers and people you know, does it break your heart that they're not going to heaven? So you don't have to answer that. It's easy to tell whether or not it does. People don't have to see your tears. It's pretty easy to tell by... Your desire to talk to them about Jesus and how that manifests itself. Finally, Brother Jenkins says about verse 5 back in Psalm 126. Yet the promise of God is that we will be filled with joy. You see, the Lord confirmed exactly that in Matthew 5, 4, when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn over the sinful state of others as well as their own sin, those people whom it breaks their heart, God says, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to comfort those people. I am going to comfort those who truly mourn. Brother Jenkins says there is no joy greater than that of leading another soul to the Lord. Folks, when you get to the point, if you never led somebody to Christ, when you get to the point where you may have gone through 16 Bible studies, you may have gone through two Bible studies, you may have knocked a lot of doors, you may have heard a lot of no's, you may have made a lot of people upset because you teach the gospel, but when you get to that one soul who finally says I just want to do what God wants and you see them born of the water and the spirit and come out of that baptistry guess what that joy is going to overwhelm all of that disappointment mothers is that not true you go through nine months of morning sickness and all this stuff but when they lay that perfect pure little newborn baby on you in the hospital that morning that kind of takes care of all that other stuff don't it 
I can't speak to this personally, but that's the way I've, I've heard that's the way it works. It's the same way when one is born again. All that door-knocking sickness, if I may, all of that travail, all of that pain, all of that sleeplessness, all of that frustration over those you couldn't reach, when you hit that one that you do, that joy makes it worth everything. Brother Jenkins says, read the last verse slowly and hear God's message to you. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you see that? Shall doubtless. If you continually go forth with a broken heart over their sins, and it just it causes you to want to cry, and, and your heart is broken for where they're at, so much that you've got to do something about it. And you, you bear seed for sowing, Psalm 126 in verse 6, the Bible says you shall doubtless... Come again with rejoicing, bringing your sheaves with you. We sow. We sow continually. We sow with tears. We sow with a broken heart. Knowing that without doubt there will be the joy of the harvest as the sheaves are brought in. Want to be a better soul winner? Brother Jenkins closes with this sentence. Read and meditate on this psalm, Psalm 126. As, as, as Kidner noted, this psalm, speaking first to its own times, speaks still. And what does this psalm say to us? God's former blessings are a pledge of others yet to come. Every dry stream, he's talking about evangelistic efforts here, every dry stream should be looked upon as a potential river. Diligent work, the good seed which is the word of God, and tearful earnestness on the part of the sower are the certain pledges of a bountiful harvest when we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. The lesson is yours this morning. If there's anybody here this morning who has not yet been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, if there's anybody here this morning who has not repented of some sin in their life, if there's anybody here that needs a Bible study, if there's anybody here that needs the prayers of the church, that they would be a more effective evangelistic soul winner. If you need the help of the church in any of those ways or any I haven't listed, please make your way to the front as we stand and as we sing.